And this is West Virginia Morning. I'm Teresa Wills. Happy Leap Day. There's a lot of discussion about artificial intelligence right now, but many of us use it every day without even thinking about it. When you go to a web browser search engine, Google or Microsoft, and you search something, you can pretty much ask the question however you want, yet the search engine is able to interpret what you're asking. That story and more coming up this West Virginia Morning. Support for West Virginia Morning is proudly provided by Luke Frazier. The first U.S. city to earn a special status for its addiction recovery resources is in southern West Virginia. Jack Walker has more. Overcoming addiction often means facing stigma and uncertainty over where to get help. But Beckley is forming a united front to support recovery. In March, it will become the first U.S. city to be named an inclusive recovery city. That new status means Beckley will support recovery on the city level, not just through individual nonprofits. James Phillips, the Beckley recovery advocate spearheading the new status, said fragmented support networks come with risks. When you have multiple isolated pockets of recovery who maybe don't know what the other pockets of recovery are doing, there are people that slip through the gaps. Soon, Beckley will host recurring community recovery events and establish a council to address addiction locally. For West Virginia Public Broadcasting, I'm Jack Walker in Charleston. Foster parents and kinship caregivers will have access to a new information portal if a house bill becomes law. Emily Rice has more. Many delegates rose to speak to the ongoing problems in West Virginia's foster care system, insisting House Bill 4975 does not do enough to help the state's more than 6,000 kids in foster care. The bill would incorporate a foster and kinship parent information system into the existing child welfare information technology system. Delegate Larry Rowe, a Democrat from Kanawha County, spoke in support of the bill but said it fell short. Short. The bill itself is very good, but it's only one step. We need to take the other step and help these families before they're split up in court in abuse and neglect proceedings. House Bill 4975 passed the House unanimously and will now be considered by the Senate. For West Virginia Public Broadcasting, I'm Emily Rice in Charleston. The Allegheny Front, based in Pittsburgh, is a public radio program that reports on environmental issues in the region. Here's their latest story about issues with natural gas storage wells and their potential for failure. A federal report shows how many facilities that store natural gas underground for later use are vulnerable to leaking because of a design flaw. This is the Allegheny Front Environment Update. I'm Carol Holsapel. In 2015, a blowout at the Aliso Canyon storage facility became the worst gas leak in U.S. history, releasing 100,000 tons of climate-warming methane into the atmosphere. In 2022, a well failed at Equitrans Rager Mountain underground storage facility in Cambria County, Pennsylvania, releasing natural gas for almost two weeks. Taylor Kate Brown reported why another disaster like it could happen again for Floodlight, a climate accountability news outlet. I asked her why the well at Rager Mountain failed and caused the leak. The short answer is corrosion, specifically corrosion created by the exposure of the elements. One of the crucial things to know about wells and gas storage specifically is many of them were not built for this purpose. They were designed to and drilled to be production wells. So like a one-way trip. It doesn't automatically mean 
all gas storage wells will break, but many of them are several decades old now. How many wells at storage facilities in Pennsylvania and across the country could potentially have a similar incident because of similar designs or setups? So there are in total about 400 gas storage fields in the United States. 49 of those are in Pennsylvania. The study that I uh, talked about in my story is based on federal data. There were more than 300 fields in the U.S. where there was at least one of these potential single point of failure wells. And in Pennsylvania, that was all but one of the fields. Single point of failure is this term that's used. You describe it as wells that have a single barrier to failure. Can you just say a little bit more about what that means? A lot of these were designed to only have casing, the gas flows through the casing, and there's not another barrier on top of the casing, or there's not a consistent barrier all the way down to where the gas is coming out. And so basically, if something goes wrong with that casing, there's nowhere else for it to go other than outside, whether it's the rock itself or the atmosphere. In sort of newer um, wells, wells that are not designed for production, you might have cement, you might have additional tubing where the gas flows through the tubing instead of just through the casing. What I learned is that there's a lot of different ways you can structure wells, but in every case that they're talking about in this study, without other information, it's possible that if something breaks, there's nowhere else for that gas to go but outside. What are the new or existing regulations that could prevent a well blowout from happening? When Aliso Canyon happened in 2015, there was a federal task force that came together. And one of their recommendations was phasing out single point of failure designs. That ultimately didn't make it into the federal standards. But there was new regulation that came from that, including baseline risk assessments and additional data on these wells. I should also say there's a wider effort underway about methane leaks across the oil and gas industry, not just storage. One of these is the proposed waste methane rule. The rule would force companies to pay a fee, eventually up to $1,500 a ton for major methane leaks like this. So if this fee had been applicable during the Rager Mountain Lake, it would be somewhere in the millions of dollars. So that might ultimately be a fine that would be a stronger incentive to avoid such a major issue. Taylor Kate Brown's story was first published by Floodlight. You can read her story at our website, alleghenyfront.org. That's the Allegheny Front Environment Update. I'm Kara Holsapple. The Allegheny Front is based in Pittsburgh and reports on regional environmental news. This is West Virginia Morning. I'm Teresa Wills. It's 7.50. Sunny and breezy today. High temperatures in the 30s and 40s. Mostly clear tonight. Lows in the 20s. Tomorrow, increasing cloudiness with a chance of rain in the afternoon. Highs in the 40s and 50s. Support for WVPB is provided by Segra. Providing fiber-based communication solutions that give businesses the freedom to grow. More information at segra.com. And by the Kanawha County Public Library, providing more than books with its new bookmobile. Now on the road in Kanawha County. Information at kcpls.org.
It took 66 years to go from the Wright brothers to the moon. Experts say it won't take that long for artificial intelligence to turn everything on its head. Randy Yoey talked with Joshua Spence, Chief Information Officer for Alpha Technologies, and Delegate Evan Hansen, a Democrat from Monongalia County, on what AI means for now and the future. All right, let's start with you, Josh. AI, artificial intelligence. Let's just get a basic definition because it does it falls into a couple of different categories, right? Yeah, absolutely. AI's been around for a while, and there's a couple of different variations of how it um, how it's leveraged. Um, but ultimately, it's technology and it's a tool. So it, one, one form of which AI has been around is you see that natural language processing. And so natural language processing is when you go to a web browser search engine, Google or Microsoft, and you search something, you can pretty much ask the question however you want, yet the search engine is able to interpret what you're asking. And so that's one form. The form that's really come out more recently that's gotten a lot of craze is generative AI, where you're asking the technology to generate something creative or create something off of a prompt. And we, we have del- we have uh, legislation, Delegate Hansen, uh, regarding a number of aspects, but from what I heard from the speaker back before the session started and, and some others as well, uh, we want to just get a hold of AI before it gets a hold of us for both good and bad. Am I right? I think that's true, and I think we need to educate ourselves as lawmakers because AI has great potential to do good, and it also has potential to do bad, so we want to be able to make smart policy. Um, let's start with some more definitions, deep fakes. I mean, that's more than Photoshop on steroids, right? Absolutely. So a deep fake is where you're taking a video or an audio or both, and you're digitally altering that, usually on a person or an object, and you're changing what that object or person looks like. So uh, the the, mo- uh, the real dangerous piece to it is when you're changing the voice to make it say something different, the person to say something different, or they look like a different person. And of course, uh, those can be used for malicious purposes. We've heard that in the House the other day with a bill that talked about deep fakes regarding elections and and campaigning. Uh, Tell me about the concerns there. Well, there is a concern. We we saw what happened with somebody essentially faking President Biden's voice in New Hampshire. Um, So deep fakes can be used directly in elections. I mean, there are some subtleties related to that bill. Um, The definition of deep fake, in my opinion, included things like photoshopping images on a campaign mailer. And so I think that that kind of underscores the importance of us really getting educated on this issue so we could properly define things in the bills that we pass and and target the truly malicious actors rather than over-regulating. It's, it's all still pretty new to understand. Uh, when, you, when, when you talk about that bill, uh, how would enforcement come about? I think that's one of the, <laughs> one of the good questions as well. I mean, it, that particular bill outlawed uh, the use of deep fakes for elections within 60 days of an election. And I assume some type of complaint would need to be filed. But, you know, that's even without deep fakes, there's all sorts of malicious things that happen with elections in the days leading up to Election Day. So we're not in totally uncharted territory. It's just that even more malicious things could be done if you're impersonating somebody. Josh, there's another bill out besides um, a campaign and election that has to do with pornography and minors. And I know that there's a big concern there when it comes to some of these deep fakes. 
Yeah, absolutely. So just like any any technology advancements, those those tools can be used for good or they can also be used for, for bad and for malicious intent. And so we need to be on the forefront of making sure uh, there's protections in place to protect citizens. And this is a big protection that needs to be put. And I'm just glad to see that they're moving it forward. Um, let's talk about education. You, you sent me a couple of notes that I thought were interesting that education's initial response is to slow down and inhibit the use of AI in the classroom. Is cheating right? But no. Uh, there, I'll start with you, Josh. There's a number of ways that education, that AI is, is, is a positive tool for education. Absolutely. It is a tool that we need to incorporate into how students learn and how they perform as students because the expectation once they get into the workforce will be to leverage AI as part of their job. So we want to make sure we're getting on the front end of that and not um, not, not blocking it down. So let me give you just a real quick example. When I was in high school, we'd ask the math teacher, can we use a calculator on the test? And of course, her answer was no, we couldn't. She said, are you going to carry a calculator around everywhere you go? <laughs> But yet we do now, right? So it's just important to understand where the technology is going to do with, with the workforce so that we're properly preparing them. And it's not just math, it's science as well that we have to relate AI into our educational system, is not? I think it's everything. It's all the <laughs> subjects. And, and I, I think one of the concerns is what about cheating, right? So, and that's a real concern and something that needs to be dealt with by our school system. That was Joshua Spence and Delegate Evan Hansen speaking with Randy Yowie about artificial intelligence and what it means to West Virginia. To hear the rest of that conversation, visit our website and tune in to the legislature today, every night at 6 p.m. West Virginia Morning is a production of West Virginia Public Broadcasting, which is solely responsible for its content. You can keep up with the latest West Virginia news throughout the day on our website, wvpublic.org. Support for our news bureaus comes from Shepherd University. Our Appalachia Health News Project is made possible with support from Marshall Health. West Virginia Morning is produced with help from Bill Lynch, Brianna Heaney, Chris Schultz, Curtis Tate, Emily Rice, Eric Douglas, Jack Walker, Liz McCormick, and Randy Yowie. Eric Douglas is our news director, and he produced today's show. I'm your host, Teresa Wills. This is West Virginia Morning. <laughs>